Hey, this is Pete Bauer from the Pete Bauer Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. As always, I am joined by my daughter and our Sunlight Press marketing guru, Dorothea Bauer. And today we're going to talk about some things that we have learned thus far in regards to beta readers, for one, and some other things in regards to the effect of writing these novellas and the impact of those on the novels. So, teen beta readers. Yes, teen beta readers. (laughs) The the operative word there is teen. Yes, they are are a necessary evil. (laughs) Yes, well, especially since we're writing for them. The other operative word there is evil. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) No, so we need the teen beta readers because they are our target demographic. Yes, however, the... The difficulties that we've had with some of our teen beta readers is that they're not big on getting back to you with their critiques or comments. Yeah, their their sense of time is interesting. Is, is a little different than the rest of the world with watches. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very complicated way to say that. Yes, but accurate. Because the agreement we have with our beta readers is that they will get back to us in two weeks. We've had about, well... Two of the people agreed to read it, and I'm looking forward to their, I'm looking forward to all of the responses, but two of them agreed to read it, and then they left for Spain for for like a month. So they said they were going to read it on the plane, but I haven't heard back from them while they've been overseas. So that's one thing that maybe could have been communicated. I think one of the things that we could have done to improve our partnership with our teen beta readers was to have a face-to-face conversation with them and say, look, when you read this book, you're agreeing to take notes, write comments, right. rate it at the end, fill out a survey, do whatever it is that oh, you yeah, asked them to do. But yeah. The problems that we've had with our beta readers are entirely my fault. I mean, that that's true because I, I didn't prep them. I used the same process we used with our first round of beta readers, which are, you know, adults, many with children. And so, you know, I just assumed that the same process of communication would work until proven otherwise and have thus been proven otherwise. (laughs) Well, I think a lot of the teens have actually viewed what this intended partnership is, is actually you giving them a free book. Yeah. And that was not the intention. And actually, we wrote an email to them, mm-hmm. and we drafted that. And in the email, it said, this is not a finished product. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of work we still have to do. And we're just asking for your feedback and how we can improve it. So yeah. it's a book that you will enjoy more. Yeah. And well, it was a very, very wonderfully written email. Um, <laughs> I just think that <laughs> I think that it would have been better. Had the conversation occurred face-to-face. Yeah. No, I mean, it's not surprising, right? They're teenagers, and we're asking for young teens to participate. And we're we're joking around here, but honestly, we need their feedback, and we this is a learning process for us as well as them. They've never been beta readers before. So I think it's really clear to set up those very specific expectations and get their buy-in. Like you said, I think it's probably better teens to do that face-to-face because we have gotten some feedback. It's unfair to say we, we haven't received any. We've gotten about half of the feedback that we expected. So some have been very good about responding in the timely manner. The other challenge you have with teenagers is that they, you were a teenager not too long ago, and my son is still a teenager, so they're very good at giving you what they feel about it, just not in depth. And we didn't set the expectation. We gave them a survey with some text boxes that we expected them to fill out, and you know they would finish the survey, and then the text boxes were filled with, I liked it, it was cool. And not the depth that we got from the the older beta readers. And again, we did not set the expectation correctly. So the lesson learned here is 
you want to make sure that you have a face-to-face -face or a very clear set of guidelines and expectations that they understand where their process fits in the overall publishing of a novel and um, and how the timely response is critical for the next step of the novel creation to continue. Another way that I think would be interesting to explore the opinions of our teen beta readers would be to have a focus group instead of a survey. Right. Because I think if we got all of them to sit down and talk mm -hmm. and express their opinions and thoughts on the book, them having a conversation with one another would actually give us more information than if we had a idea. survey. Yeah. Because I remember being in college, which was very recent, and so many of my friends would send me surveys. I was a communication major, so there were so, so, so many surveys. And, of course, you had your own surveys that needed to be filled. So it was kind of this... Give and take. Give and take between you and your friends and you filled out so many surveys but by you know the 40 or 50th you're just like yep it's great good i did this <laughs> this was awesome and even then even when it's academically related you just kind of get to a point where you don't want to do it anymore so i think if we were able to sit down with them and have a conversation and have that be enjoyable but also professional uh we could get some really good insight from that and I think even that would have to work with an independent moderator as well. Because we, we were at a graduation party for one of our friends, and one of the beta readers was there. And I asked her if she liked the process. And, and she was very positive, but you could tell she was also shy about being completely honest. All the responses we've gotten have been very positive, but suddenly being in that face-to-face -face situation, you could see her kind of like afraid to offend me in any way. So I think that's where the focus group would have to be like the author couldn't be there and, and you couldn't be there either because you, you represent that. It would have to be someone independent where it was recorded so we could get the feedback like audio recorded. We want it to be as honest as possible. And if you know your beta readers personally, you actually are in a really great position to figure out what the best way to get information from them would be because this person that we're referring to in particular is a very, very sweet person. Yeah, she's pretty and awesome. And she's so incredibly kind. And so she would just not be one to criticize people in general. That's not her personality. That's not her nature. Whereas someone else that we know who is not a beta reader would have absolutely no hesitation about criticizing people. So if you know that, you can kind of figure out the best way to get the information you need from them. So this has been a really good learning experience for us. Um, just some unexpected things that it's just so funny because it's one of those things where I kind of feel like I should have seen it coming but I didn't and then as soon as it happens you're like well of course they're not going to give in-depth responses because they're teenagers and unless they're talking to each other like you said in a focus group they don't really express themselves to adults in the most detailed fashion and uh, like I said all, all of the challenges with our teen beta readers are completely my fault for not setting the expectations right. I think we've just been so preoccupied with moving forward and moving on to the next step that we just sort of overlooked those those details a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I mean, it became the next thing, right? It became, well, we give it to our adult beta readers, and then we give it to our teen beta readers, and then we make the final rewrite, and then we give it to an editor, and then we publish it. I mean, it was just like, we need to get this next thing off the list. So, yeah, lesson learned. Another interesting aspect that's come out of writing these novellas has been that in the first novel, so I had written the first novel many times as we've talked about before <laughs> and I'd actually written the a couple of drafts of the second novel so about 145,000 words 
And a lot of the first novel, obviously, when you're introducing people and things and places and so forth, you spend a a time to kind of world build for the reader. But as we've been going through these novellas and you're introducing these people and places earlier and in different ways, there was just so much of the world that, that was written in the first novel that I knew had to be eliminated or adjusted and, and minimized. Also, kind of the style, as I've continued to write, the style that these novellas is a little different than the way the novel was written. So I also knew that I'd have to make those match. Looking at all those things, I just kind of realized that I'm going to have to start over with both novels. And so that means throwing away years of work and 145,000 words But it's for all the right reasons, so you just have to do it. But, you know, in order for them to all feel like they come from the same world at the same time with the same voice, um, it was necessary. And um, sure, I wept a little. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's it's interesting because I think that as your daughter, I'm in a unique position to really understand the way that you work. And despite the fact that the first novel was really you learning how to write novels from screenwriting, you always you always approached it as being a professional endeavor. You always approached it as if you were going to sell the book at the end. And that's very much a family trait because grandpa was the same way with his painting. My grandfather used to paint and from the very beginning, he always showed his work in public, no matter how bad it was. He always showed his work in public. I was always amazed by that. I was always amazed by that. So I think that's kind of just a family thing for you guys is whenever you approach something, you approach it with the end result being that it's going to be seen and it's going to be shared. And that's why I think this need to let go of that first novel has been so difficult was because you always approached it as if it was going to be professional when in actuality, it was more of a learning experience. Right. So all those drafts were me retraining my brain to write novels, and that's fine. The story itself will remain relatively the same for both novels. But just the voice, the mood, the style has evolved over time. And so we just need those to match. So that's what will happen. What amazes me about my dad who did that is, and I kind of understand it now from a novel perspective. We kind of talked about this before, where when I was involved in in independent film and low-budget movies and micro-cinema and all that, everything I've ever made could have been made better if I had better resources. But novels, what you get is whatever talent is in my pool at the time. So... That's all you're getting. And I never understood when I was involved in the film world how my dad could do that, how my dad could say, because my dad at one point, after he'd been painting, he'd retired and he always wanted to paint. And so he started painting. And then one day he he booked the clubhouse at his condo place and just had a party and just showed everything that he'd ever done, stuff that was horrendous to stuff that was really beautiful. And I was just stunned by his confidence in himself to go, yeah, that, that really is awful, isn't it? I mean, I remember him pointing out to me, say, see, Pete, how the, you see how the scope and the perspective is wrong in the doorway compared to the window? Yeah, I fixed that in like three paintings later, but this one, man, this one always drove me nuts because I didn't know how to do it. And he was just so open about it. As I've said before, I look at my previous film work going, well, it's, it's, it's as good as it could have been, but it always could have been better. Now that I'm writing novels, I totally get that my dad was expressing his growth as an artist because that painting with its bad perspective was the best he could do at the time and he was not ashamed of that. And so I know that in 10 years when I look back on whatever I write with these Gabby Wells novels, I go, man, I could have done it so much better now, but that's the best I had at the time. So I I don't think I'll be ashamed or, or embarrassed by any of the work that I do from a novel perspective because that's all I got, you know? So I was just always amazed at that and it's funny to me that it's taken 
all this time to realize where my father was coming from. Well, I remember when I was in college, I took a drawing class and I still had Facebook at the time. So I decided that I was going to do exactly what grandpa did and post all of my projects on Facebook for my family to see. And in general, I really didn't mind doing that, even though there were some projects that I was not very proud of. I still posted them and, you know, figured I'd get some feedback, get some advice. There are some artists that I'm friends with, and they gave me some advice for future improvement. But at the end of the semester, there was this one drawing I had to do, and it was awful. It was so, so, so bad. I was embarrassed that it had my name on it, (laughs) that I had to turn it in. It was so terrible. It was a bad choice of what to draw. Right. The lighting was bad. The lighting that I set up that I had to draw was bad. And then the actual drawing just looked terrible. And I turned it in and I said, this is a piece of crap. It's just absolutely terrible. And the teacher's like, no, it's fine. I see what you were trying to do. And (laughs) I came home and I realized that I had to post the picture on Facebook. And I said, because I've I've done it all semester. I can't not do it now. And it was literally one of the worst moments of my life was going, this is not only something I'm identifying with myself to my family and all of my friends and everyone that I know, but it is now online and will forever be affiliated with me. And it was just absolutely terrible. Well, the great part about that is you completely set yourself up for failure by picking a bad choice and lighting it poorly. And then trying to draw it. But see, you learn stuff, right? I did learn stuff. Because I've always taken all of my writing as an experiment. Because there's been when I was writing screenplays as my own creative outlet, there were plenty of times where I would go, all right, I'm going to try writing this. And some of them were just horrendous. And you're like, okay, right? I'm not good at writing that. That's okay. So as long as I learn something, I don't really mind it. And you learned it. But but then again, no one's ever read those screenplays. (laughs) That I go, wow, that's really awful. So... I did. Well, it was funny because there was only one part of that photo that was actually good. And that's what everyone said. It's kind of like when you go to a play that's horrendous and you just talk about how amazing the costumes were or the set or anything that you can get around to say that the play was really bad. Yeah. And um, it was the the nose. The nose Mm. was actually drawn well. Everything else is terrible. Like it was it was a chest up kind of a photo so that just shows you how much there was, was actually bad <laughs> and everyone's like well the nose looks good i do remember when i was involved in theater and and with my friends and so forth and we came up with code phrases to say to people to our friends who were in plays that were horrendous because <laughs> you didn't want to say uh, that was awful and my friend pb patrick boynton he was one of the funniest people i've i've known and um he had the best ones he would just say like man you were up there like that's that's a non-committal statement of fact you know he would say man who who did your hair (laughs) like that had nothing to do all of his statements had nothing that doesn't even say the hair's good it was awesome he had like five of them that he would just throw out there like man you were you were acting (laughs) that's another one which is the worst such an insult yes that is the worst thing you could tell an actor man you were up there acting you were man everyone could see it (laughs) And so, you know, it's it's hard to take criticism. You know, that reminds me. So my friend Chris from college and my brother Paul both have the same ability, which is really important and exceptionally annoying. <laughs> and when Chris um, and I were in college and we were, both, we were both in the theater department, but we were more interested in movies. And now he works in television 
He's been making a living at it for quite a while, and he's doing very well for himself. But he was always really good. Whenever you write something, there's always those parts that you know are weak. And you're just hoping, hoping that you were able to fake it. You know what I mean? Like, like I don't know, maybe, maybe I wrote so much before and after that was really awesome that they just won't recognize that moment of ugliness. And Chris and my brother Paul are really good at, as soon as they would start, like Paul was over talking about one of the novellas. I asked him to do an early read of it because the logic, the one we've been working on, Skyway, the logic was was a little more complex than we thought. And I just want I said, look, before I even do another rewrite, I just want to make sure there's no gaping holes in logic that I need to address when I do it because I'm too close to the story. And so he was in town and, and he was going through the things. And there are some times where he'd go, well, this, I'm like, I know. <laughs> I know. I know exactly what's wrong with it. You saw it dang it so fine i'm gonna have to do it and chris was the same way and it was so annoying but good right and because you want them because it means you didn't pull it off right and but chris was and paul are just so good at just finding those like out of you know fifty thousand words they'll find the five that you're like oh this isn't really what i want to say and they go i don't think this is what you're trying to say and you're like shut up Anyway, but he was really helpful, and he's he's been very supportive. My brother, Chris, hasn't read one of my screenplays in a long time because he does it for a real living now. But my brother Paul's always been really supportive since college as well, and uh, and so his notes and stuff were really good. He's he's given me some really good stuff about the overall approach to the material that that has been interesting. Chris is also an interesting person because I've seen photos of him from college, and he hasn't aged. No, at all. I he looks exactly the same. He is. He's one of those people. I have a f- couple of friends in college that look like they haven't aged at all. And it's so annoying because I grade prematurely. So <laughs> it was like, I'm like that Steve Martin thing where, like we were talking about um, how whenever you, I think back to my dad, I think back to him at the oldest time. Like I didn't appreciate when my dad was younger and I was younger. When I think back to the conversation we had when like at that painting showcase, I still think of him as my old dad near before he passed away because you just don't you just don't log the you know the aging of your parents in your brain and you were you were saying that well I was gray so early that I've kind of <laughs> looked the same through your whole childhood you're pretty ageless in in, in my lifetime <laughs> right? actually I know you've aged since, since college, college yeah. but yeah in the time that I've known you yeah you've looked the same <laughs> so yeah so but but Chris and and Leslie from college they they look so much the same and it's it's really um kind of annoying <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're talking about the guy um, who plays Ducky on NCIS. He's he hasn't aged at all in the ten years that show's been on, and he's eighty now. Amazing, amazing. This is good genes, I guess. Absolutely, it's excellent because you have no control over that whatsoever. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I can thank my mother for my prematurely graying hair, but I am also grateful because, as I've learned, if it's gray. It stays. That is true. So I find it funny when people brag about qualities that they have no control over. Right. Like when they're tall, they'll be like, well, I'm tall. And I'll be like, well, I can wear heels. So there's an option there. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I had blue eyes and I had nothing to do with that. (laughs) But one of the things that Paul suggested, and I was so annoyed because as soon as he said it, it seemed appropriately accurate. And that was that novellas are hard. Mystery novellas are hard because you it's really hard to insert enough red herrings within a novella word count. 
And so you don't want to have a mystery series that it's not very mysterious. Right? That would be the worst. What? That would be the worst thing. Come on. Yeah. I think there's... I think there's a market there. I don't know. We watch a lot of shows where we know who the bad guy is. <laughs> well, yeah, but that's more from experience than. That's true, but but you don't want to have a you know a a semi mysterious mystery series, and it's Guys, really. I just started reading this new book. It's so predictable. <laughs> it's awesome. You should check it out. I love the characters, and I know who did it in chapter two. <laughs> um, <laughs> he said, "Well, just maybe they need to be novels then, in order to add enough word count to." add layers to the story and so you had talked about in a previous podcast how funny you think it is that my original goal was to write five novels and now it's turned into five novellas and five novels and now it may turn into 10 novels and and again I wept I wept a little bit (laughs) (laughs) so um so I don't know if that's the right thing to do I don't know if all the novella ideas we have really need to be novels I mean as far as word count to be effective well, and it can go back and forth. If you look at my bookshelf, you'll see the Harry Potter series, and it goes from a very small book to a very large book. And the largest book is actually The Order of the Phoenix, which is the one no one ever reads. And <laughs> it's in the... Oh, that's effective. It's the fifth book. Well, because once you read it the first time, you learn everything. You don't right. really need to go through it again. Yeah. yeah. It kind of grows as the story grows. So right. it may just be one of those situations where as the world expands and the story grows, the length grows as well because books like the hunger games they're about the same length for each book so it just kind of depends on what the story needs right and that's the key is at this point i mean he agreed and i agree that really the first novella should be a novella it's an introductory thing we plan on giving it away for free once we have the novella series and it's a small story and it's a small story intended to be an introductory to the to the gabby wells world and the gabby wells characters and a very um direct path from a to a to b as far as the the goal that gabby has and and with all the obstacles she has in the middle of it so that doesn't i don't want to waste words to try to augment that into something that's really unnecessary for that story i think it it works primarily as it is We'll have to have all the novellas written and then look at them and kind of see how they play out. So like the one Skyway, it does need more. I don't know. I It's already the novellas were originally 25,000 words and it's already at 40. It probably to add the correct layering, it could be another 20,000. So it may be a novel when it's done, but the other ones may not. It may end up being a novel, but at the same time, it's also at the moment, the fourth novella. Right. So it could continue to grow or it could be taken back a little bit it just depends on where we go with these other stories no you're right and so right now we're working on the the storyline i've started to write the second novella called lost and found and i started to write that but i paused because this conversation with my brother made me realize all right let me let me kind of see where we're going here and see if the layers will fit within the the novella time frame so and of course, when you write, things evolve and change, and and you know it's an outline versus a finished story. But it's just something I wanted to pay a little more attention to before I just start writing, because what I what I would like to do, if this is what we have to do, is I want to take more into consideration the layering um, before I just start writing. I, um, I just think it would be better that way if I can do it. I'm not really patient, though. This is my problem. I've ever I'm a very impatient reader, and I'm a very impatient writer, so. I'm looking right now in our office about the, on our wall, we have the story structure for the lost and found, and I'm looking at it going, well, I have, let's see, how many chapters do I have there? 20 chapters set up there on the wall, and I have filled out, I don't know, seven of them, 
and I just want to start. <laughs> like, even though I don't really have the bulk of the story defined, I'm kind of like, man, I just want to write. Well, there's a really exciting thing that we've also recently discovered about writing stories about faithful characters. And that is the inspiration that is everywhere. Religious people have been prominent figures throughout history, and the Bible is the most popular book in the world. So you can draw inspiration not only from a particular saint's faith journey, but also from just their story. You know, they've been through so much, and that was something that we found really fascinating, was going through all these stories that we had learned or had read about, and really diving deep into those characters and who they might have been and what they must have been thinking and then drawing inspiration from that when we're writing our own characters. Yeah, and the stories of the saints are so interesting because so many of them were so far from saints. Their story, it's very inspiring in the sense that it is attainable by everybody if you're willing to do it. You know, I was praying once about that, about sainthood, and and I remember praying, you know, Lord, I could never be a saint and the sense I got in my brain was, well, I've made saints out of people just like you. you know. So it's not about where you're starting that makes a saint. Obviously, it's where you end. Our Skyway story is really a very loose interpretation of a prodigal son story. It's a prodigal son story in a Gabby Wells universe. So it's, But I mean, that's the inspiration you're talking about, right? It's, it's, there's plenty of really good stories of either trying and failing or trying and succeeding in the Bible that are tremendously rich and layered that you can obviously draw from to, for inspiration for your own stories. And there's a lot of really great situations that religious figures have been put in simply because God told them to do something. So there are so many times when I've been praying in my own life and I'll have doubts about something and God will be like, just do it. Just, <laughs> just do what I tell you and you'll be fine. And layering that kind of interaction into Gabby's relationships with others and her relationship with God has been fascinating. Well, and the great thing about all of the great stories in the Bible is God's strength comes through our weakness. He picks the wrong people for the job all the time so that when it succeeds, it's like, well, it couldn't have been them that did it. You know, when you have Noah building an ark when there's never been a flood, you know, hello, <laughs> like... Uh, you sure you want me to do this? Yeah, just do it. You know, or you have the stutterer Moses who says, "I want you to be my, I want you to be my spokesman to the Pharaoh." Um, Lord, I stutter. <laughs> you, <laughs> Are you sure? Like we've seen it in the in the movies where it's like, you know, let my people go. Honestly, it was probably a lot more like let 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 my 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 uh, my people go, right? I mean, that's probably how Moses did it, and so Moses like. Uh, Lord, um, I'm a stutter. Can I have my brother help me out? And he's like, no. He's like, please, fine. Take Aaron with you, but go. <laughs> That's what makes the stories in the Bible so wonderful is that you have these people, even, you know, David, who really shouldn't be, you know, there's no reason a little guy with a slingshot should take down Goliath, <laughs> right? It shouldn't happen. And what's great about this story is that then when he gets into power, he succumbs to the temptations of power and having everything and, and so on. And so, it's uh, The Bible is full of really wonderful stories like that that you can use for inspiration. One thing that you mentioned a little earlier that I'd like to touch base on was how the mood and the theme of the story has changed as you've continued to evolve as a writer. And I think that's really fascinating because in addition to the style of your writing changing, you've also had to develop your own personal brand as an author, right. which has been continually evolving and changing. And I know it's a process you've just loved yeah. so much. Love being the center of that attention. <laughs> <laughs> but it's been really, really interesting to 
kind of figure out how you want to present yourself and what it's your so brand odd. is going to be. Yeah. And in addition to that, we've been doing that in a very public forum. Like this. Like this. Well, it is weird because being... So when I was nine years old, I wanted to make movies. So I got in the theater department in high school. I made movies when I was in high school. I went to college. They didn't have a movie program, so I went in the theater department. But I hooked up with friends in the theater department that loved movies like Chris. I actually made a movie for my senior project for theater. You know, I mean, it was those kind of things. Which um, you have not let me see. Actually, I don't have a copy of it because it was in the theater. Really? It was given to the... Yeah. Oh, is it, it's not the one that you think is horrendous and won't let me see because you want to burn it to the ground? Well, there's a couple of those. So you'll have to clarify. <laughs> but anyway, so I've always wanted to do that. And then I, I acted professionally for a little bit. And then I worked in television for a little bit. So all of my focus has been in that world. And, and when you create the product in that environment, the product is the, the movie itself, right? So you may have a director influence or a writer influence that shades kind of like if it's a Spielberg movie. Well, that adds some layering to it. Or if it's a Michael Bay movie, well, you know what you're going to get kind of thing. When we started this process of taking film and TV ideas and turning into novel stories, it was such an odd thing. Because I remember remember when we first started, I'm like, well, we should. I was approaching it like a movie project. And I'm like, well, the Gabby Wells story is the thing. And, and, and it is, right? I mean, that's what you're selling. But you're like, no, Dad, this is an author medium. I mean, this is, this is going to be about you and the story but it's, you're always going to be a part of it. And I'm just like, that's, just, that's like, you know, I don't know, Transformers the movie being a person. <laughs> you know, it's just so weird. Very, very different for me to, to approach. Well, and another interesting part of that that's completely different from movies is that every choice goes back to you. Whereas if a film company is producing a movie, they're going to hire the director and the director's going to make casting choices and then the actors may affect the budget and all of these different people come into play and they have power in that relationship. Then when that's all done, it's sent to editors and they have the power in that relationship. Then the art department is responsible for marketing and developing posters. But when we've done book covers, every potential book cover artist we've approached has asked us, well, what do you want the book cover to look like? It's always... It's always like they expect me to know. And and we're not used to that. What we're used to is being, here are the elements. Right. And Here's the story. The I'm, person I'm who's the used, professional right. is going to take care of that. Right. And it's very different in yes. an author medium. Right. Because screenplays are blueprints that are incomplete. And so, like, one thing about writing a screenplay is you'll create a really cool scene. And then you go, man, the actors have so much material here to then augment and make it their own and i can't wait to see how a director and the actors are going to collaborate and take this little like blueprint this little stick figure and just draw this beautiful picture and the learning curve for me has been that in writing obviously you are the actor you are the director you are the set designer and and so all of that falls upon you so that's been an interesting challenge and we were just talking about book covers recently and how we were like, well, how do we want to describe the homecoming incident to an artist? And we really haven't figured out how to do that yet. And we honestly, we haven't invested a lot of time in that yet because we're not there. But still, when we originally thought of that, we're like, I, I don't know how to do that yet. It's it's odd. Because we think completely differently than artists do. My roommate in college was an artist. And I remember asking her how she saw something. And she had this whole vision 
she said, well, this is going to be here and it's going to look like this and it's going to do this. And I could totally just see her going, oh, I'll read the book and make a cover. You know, it'll it'll be great and it'll be beautiful and it'll be just a work of art that you want to frame and put in your living room. But right. when you look at us, we're like, well, here's the story and the story's really cool and all this other stuff happens. And then you ask us, well, what do you want the book cover to look like? And you just go, uh, I here, don't know. Here's the story and here's, <laughs> here's what happens. <laughs> I have the same answer for every question. So yeah. it's just been a learning process, and we have to define what we're looking for. So on the drive home from an event, I was talking to your mother about our plans, our long-term plans, and how the, the industry has changed. And what's really amazed me is how different the strategies were since, like, I don't know, when did we start this novel stuff? Like about a year and a half, two years ago, something like that? And just the strategies involved two years ago don't even apply today. I mean, it's really amazing. The standard strategy was a very traditional publishing model of have a book release party. The first couple of weeks on Amazon or what have you are really, really important, kind of like the way you release a movie and you want the opening weekend to be really good. And you should do a blog tour and all those other things. And almost none of those apply now. I actually don't know enough blogs that would have enough power to be really relevant as a blog tour nowadays. Yeah. And the independent authors I listen to a lot on podcasts and so forth or, or their own blogs you know, the, the new model really is you just need to keep releasing material and you still want to build your audience and so forth. But that opening weekend stuff really doesn't exist anymore. You just need to continue to release product in a, in a timely manner and enough of it that you have to do some promotion with each book. But you're not trying to do that opening bang thing. So you release a book and you have a marketing strategy and you have a rollout strategy and you're trying to gain some traction on that first book. And then you release a second one and you, you repeat this process. It's much more the long term or they call the long tail approach where your goal is to have very slow incremental growth over time. And as you release more and more material, you'll be able to do that. And most of these independent authors say that somewhere around their third or fourth book it just kind of clicks. You have enough material out there that if people find you and your other marketing efforts and your and your street teams and stuff have done their job, enough people will start to find you that then if they like your product, you have enough material that they start telling a lot of other people. If they come across an unknown author, like these first couple of novellas, I'm not expecting much of anything as far as sales or exposure. We'll do our due diligence with marketing. But the point is, is that when you get to around four or five or six novels, then suddenly if you're a reader and you say, oh, I stumbled across this person, then if there's not enough material there, it's like, well, I'm not going to really tell anybody because there's not enough other material to share. But it's like, wow, this person, oh, I love this novel. Oh, and there's four other books. Now I'm going to start telling people about this author and their work because there's enough material there. So somewhere around three or four or five books, that sort of growth and traction really seems to increase. And then you just have to continue to to feed that growing audience. And that's kind of the difference. And it does go back to what we were talking about before with authors being as much a part of the story as the actual story itself. I would buy a book by Suzanne Collins because I love The Hunger Games and right. I'm interested in her writing. I would buy a book by J.K. Rowling because I love Harry Potter and I'm interested in her writing. So right. even though... I don't know much about this story because I trust the author and I trust their writing. I'm going to be more willing to take a chance on it and spend money on it. And the authors are now authorpreneurs, right? They're they're business people. So it's it's not just I write it and hand it off. You're like you said, you're involved in the process and you're growing it. 
And the other interesting thing to me has been how the perception of reading has evolved with the advent of the ebooks. Reading used to be, I don't know, for lack of a better term, like a literary experience. And I know all reading is, but I mean, like you had to have a book with you. You carried it with you. And certain people who really were book lovers would carry a book wherever they went in case they wanted to read a book. And those people that wouldn't want to do that would not be reading as much. But now, with the downloadable nature of all of this entertainment, you know, ebooks and audiobooks and all these different things have just become another digital consumption option. So I was in the doctor's office recently and I was waiting, as you do in doctor's offices. And I just opened up my phone and I went to my Kindle app and I said, oh, I haven't read this book yet. And I just started reading it. And so many people are digesting their material, their entertainment material on their phones. It opens up a whole change in how people approach reading. It's not so much a quote unquote literary experience. It's just another entertainment option that you have available to you. And going back to the release process, how it's different from a blockbuster mode that it used to be. One of the things that traditional publishers, if they were smart, what they would do is just lower their price of their ebooks because that's a competitive advantage that independent authors have right now is that you can buy a traditionally published ebook for $7 or $12 or whatever it is, and then we can release a book for 99 cents or $1.99 or whatever. And the reason we can do that is because we can get up to 70% of those profits from Amazon or whatever other like Kobo or Barnes & Noble or what have you, where traditionally published books, the authors are getting, I don't know, around 15%. So the traditional publishers are kind of stuck within their own structure because if they lower the price of those books, the authors are suddenly going to get a lot less income and they're going to be more disgruntled and they're going to go, well, why the heck am I traditionally published anyway? And then they go to self-publishing. So the thing that could really diminish the effectiveness of self-publishing or independent publishing is the same reason why they can't do it. You know what I mean? And it's, it's kind of like they set themselves up and eventually... I mean, if you look at these stats, I suggest people go to authorearnings.com and uh, Hugh Howey, one of the self-published, he's a hybrid author. He's both traditionally and self-published, but he's made a ton of money on his self-published work. And we've talked about this before, but he and a partner have created a way to pull out really good data out of the Amazon websites in order to figure out which books are selling and buy how much and what the profit is and so forth. And, and they make some logical assumptions about percentage of sales and so forth like that. And what's amazing is is that, like, for example, in romance, half of the books, I think it's half, half of the top books in, in romance are self-published. And those people are making 70% versus the people traditionally published making a lot less. And romance novels, if you can make corner your market in that bad boy, yeah, that's that's a huge income stream because people who love romance novels are voracious consumers. It's not that being traditionally published is bad. It's just different. And you yeah, have to have different reasons for doing it. As we've talked about before on our podcasts, we're trying to approach characters in a, in a different way that we don't think is very common. And so we just don't trust that the traditional publishers will understand that and buy into the whole scope of what we're trying to do. Now it's maybe 10 novels or whatever, but, but yeah. that's a lot of, of writing that we'd have to trust that they're going to say, after the second novel, we don't want to do it anymore. We have a very specific goal. And even what's interesting is that even talking to my brother Paul and some of the other beta readers is there's that give and take of, well, you're talking about this subject matter. Is that appropriate for this target group? And we're like, well, it depends on which target group 
how you're targeting the group, right? I yeah. mean, we're, we're if you're trying to write a book that's going to be appropriate for all the homeschool Catholic children versus trying to write a young adult novel about someone who happens to be Catholic, well, those are two very different approaches. And and those are kind of the extremes, right? It's it's going to fall somewhere in the middle. But again, those are those, it's kind of like the Matt Maher equation we talked about before. Those are the weird things you kind of have to figure out is right now, all I'm trying to do is write an honest story. And then we have to look at it and go, does this cross a certain line within how we feel we're going to approach selling it or not? Because at some point you're either going to, in the Matt Maher equation, if the numbers aren't right, then you're either going to not be Catholic or Christian enough for that audience or too Christian or Catholic for the other audience. And so finding that balance is is always going to be a struggle. And I think at the end of the day, you really just have to be true to your character and to the story that you're telling, and it will find its own audience. Because there's a difference between writing for your audience and writing a story and allowing it to find an audience. Right. And I love Quentin Tarantino when he talks about writing. He always says that a lot of his characters are offensive, you know, and he says, well... I have to write what is truthful for them, right? So this is their world that they live in. And Quentin Tarantino likes violent worlds, but this is the world they live in. This is their role and function in this world. And if they're a slave master, let's say, then he's 100%. He's not politically correct. He doesn't care because that's not truthful to someone who owns slaves. They're going to approach people a different way than someone who doesn't. So that's what we're just trying to do is tell an honest story and then hope at the end of it, that that we find that that balance that we're trying to look for. And so that's kind of where we are right now. We already recorded this once. We and, did. And the microphone had issues, and I was very unhappy. And it was hilarious. I yeah. mean, we were just... <laughs> yeah, since they can't hear it, let's just prop it up. It was the best podcast ever. You would have been crying with laughter. For the that's right, how amazing for it was. For the right reasons. For the right reasons. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're usually Sadly lost hilarious. forever. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Uh, that's, and uh, then the computer exploded. And yeah, so... There's no files anywhere. It's, there's no, it's amazing. No backup. It's just sad. Sadness. More <laughs> weeping. Um, anyway, so that's all we're going to talk about this time. Hopefully we'll have more information next time. And as always, check on our blog, thepetepowerblog.com, for updates on where I am on the different novels slash novellas and all the other challenges that we're facing as we go along. Thank you very much for joining us. And as always, if you would like to reach out to us, please feel free to email us at contactus at sunlightpress.com. Or if you're listening to this on our blog, please leave us comments in the comment section. Yep, we would love to hear from you. So thank you very much for joining us. And as always, we'll see you guys next time.